Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. I just looked at it as if it can help somebody later on down the line, then why not? That was kind of my thought process. Somebody's got to be the first to try it. What happens when a Fontan patient's ejection fraction dips too low? Can a person's heart damage be reversed? Is there hope for a cure for congenital heart defects? Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and your host. I am also a heart mom to an adult who was born with a single ventricle heart and who is 27 years old. This is the reason I am the host of your program. I'm very excited about today's show featuring a very special heart warrior. Today's program is entitled Adult Stem Cell Success Story. Brenton Ball was born in 1990. He was diagnosed with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, or HLHS, and was airlifted to Mercy Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa in his first week of life. He has had several heart surgeries, including a pulmonary artery banding, hemifontan, and completia fontan. He's had many stents put in, a pacemaker, and two ICDs. Brenton has been married to his wife, Kelsey, for five years. They live in Iowa with their pet rabbit, Big Boone, a gift from Brenton's sister last summer. They live close to their families and are a loving uncle and aunt to their four nephews and one niece. Brenton works part-time as a hotel desk clerk and enjoys reading and spending time with his family. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Brenton. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I'm very happy to have you on the program, and I want to start by talking about your medical journey. Since you were born in 1990, you're one of the earlier HLHS survivors. Did your parents know in utero that you would be born with a heart defect? No, they actually missed that on my mother's sonogram. My mom has claimed to look back and noticed it, but at that time, no, nobody noticed it. Yeah, nobody noticed it with my son, who was born four years after you. So if she didn't know in utero, when did she find out that you actually had HLHS? About that first week. It's kind of sketchy. I've asked both parents when they actually discovered it. My mom claims right away she knew something was wrong with my breathing. I made it all the way home, and I was having issues breathing. And being a new mom, they just didn't really believe her. They're like, oh, you'll be fine. You're just a new mom. And I ended up turning blue and they brought me in and life flighted me to mercy once the doctor looked at me. So how old were you when you were life flighted? So my mom would say the first week, according to my grandma's diary, it was like day 13. But oh, wow. I kind of struggled to believe I made it that long, but somewhere around that week and a half stage. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So you had to go not just out of town, but out of state? No, my first surgery was in Mercy in Des Moines, which is in Iowa. Oh, okay. So the very first surgery was the quotation repair and banding of my pulmonary artery. That was all done in Des Moines. 
Okay. So how far is that from where you live? About 80 miles. Oh, that's not too bad then. No, they still life flighted because at that point, my parents were told I wasn't going to make it through the night once they discovered what it was. Right. They'd do what they could and do the surgery, but they didn't really know. Now, you were in the helicopter. Were one of your parents with you? I don't believe any of them were. I think my mom, we always joke that she beat the helicopter there, but (laughs) I think they drove separately (laughs) to get there. Yeah, they probably did. I'm sure you know that feeling. Yeah, we didn't go by helicopter. We went by land ambulance. And I didn't know that all mothers didn't go with their babies when they had to go to the hospital. She gets upset if I have to go on an ambulance. I go by myself. Oh, gosh. It's so hard for us mothers to let our babies go. And it doesn't matter how big you are. And it doesn't matter if you're bigger than she is now. You're still her baby. Exactly. (laughs) So you were one of the early ones. You ended up having the banding and the coarctation repair. So how old were you when you had the hemifontan? Okay, so that's where I had to look into my medical records, and I am definitely a different case than anybody else I've came across, because I'm assuming your son had all his surgeries by four, five? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he actually had his Fontan at 10 months. Okay, so for some reason, I learned I had a Dumas K stencil procedure. That's what my son had. They called it a modified Norwood. And then later when he had his third surgery, I was looking at the surgical notes and they called it a DKS. And I said, what is a DKS? That's when I found out he actually had a modified Damas K stencil. So wow. But I had that in 1996, it looks like. Okay. Is when I had that. And then my records show that I had it again in 2000, but it also shows a revision of the Fontan and what is this pronounced? Anostensile cavipulmonary. I don't know. I Googled it and that basically says the Glenn procedure. So they kind of have that. What I noticed different with mine is it's just more spread out like 96, 2000, and 2002. Yeah. For my procedures where most everybody is done by four. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised. And I've met you. You're yes. a regular sized person. In fact, you're bigger than I am. <laughs> yes. Yep. So it obviously did not stunt your growth in the least. Oh, it did. It did. I did growth hormone for two years. Oh, did you? Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. So it did stunt your growth. Well, it would have shocked me if it hadn't because you were probably running around with your oxygen saturation a little bit lower than what the average person has. And that very well might have stunted things. So, okay. You took some additional hormones to help you grow a little bit bigger. And then you had your hemifontan when you were quite a bit older, did you have a Fontan, a complete Fontan? All the records show that it was just a revision of the Fontan. It never actually said Fontan. So, I mean, if you're revising it, I would think somehow I would have had some version of it, but no, right. <laughs> it just says revision of is all uh-huh. I have in my records. Huh. So okay, yeah, it's different. Yeah, it is a bit different. Do you know when they revised it, did they do a fenestrated Fontan? So that that I have no clue, but I do have an answer for you because it came up in talking with other patients. Apparently the fenestration is a big thing. I was never told anything about it growing up, but I did ask an echo tech one day and she's like, yeah, it's closed. And I'm like, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. See, my son's never closed. I mean, that was never really brought up to me, maybe to my parents. Huh. 
So you had multiple surgeries growing up. Do you remember any of those surgeries? Not the surgeries per se. I remember being in the hospital some and playing duck hunt, the old game, getting to do that. Remember the good things about <laughs> Did you the just say hunt. duck hunt? Yeah. Oh my fun. gosh. My kids loved that game. <laughs> that was back in the old days. Now it's all on a TV, but they used to have to roll in the TV and everything oh, yeah. and set it up on a Nintendo. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I totally remember that. So Mm -hmm. do you think that your memories of being in the hospital were scary? Not really. I don't, I know a lot of the older adult patients and I mean, I understand it, but a lot of them have major anxiety of going to a hospital. I don't feel that I have that. No, it's just another part of my life. I just go when I have to go. Don't really get a choice in the matter. Night Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Brenton, I actually had the pleasure of meeting you and your wife in person, pre-COVID, of course, at a conference at Mayo Clinic. And you have a very special relationship with Mayo. Can you tell me about the stem cell project that you've taken part in? I don't know what they officially called it. They were trying to regenerate the right side tissue using your own growth stem cells to improve a function of your heart, the ejection fraction. Right. How did you first become aware of the project? I wasn't feeling any different or anything like that. That was not how I ended up getting on this. I was in my car driving and I got a call from my pediatric cardiologist, Dr. O'Leary, And he informed me that I was eligible for a stem cell trial that nobody had done. And of course, I asked why I was eligible. And he said, well, your ejection fraction is like 30 or below. And was this your first time? But this was your first time to hear? Yeah, I didn't really pay much attention to my ejection fraction. I knew what it was, but didn't know the severity of it or anything like that. So were you not feeling exhausted? Because nope. I would think if no, you had like it, I said, when I got the call, I was in my car driving. It was just another day for me. That's just yep. amazing to me. So your ejection fraction was thirty mm-hmm. percent or lower, but you just yep. felt like you normally do. Yep. Wow. And that, that's what they informed me on the phone, and that's why I was eligible. And I said, okay. So what does it all detail? Mm-hmm. And they told me that it'd be. Can't remember if it was two or three day procedure. All they knew is nobody else had done it, and they were looking for people that qualified for it to try it out means it's a trial. 
But you don't normally receive care at Mayo. Is that correct? No, I do. That is my primary care facility. Oh, that is your primary care facility. Okay. So, but that's not super close to your house, is it? Nope. Like I said, I had my first surgery in Des Moines. I had a cardiologist in Des Moines until, oh geez, I was probably 10 and then he retired. And then we started going to the Mayo Clinic, but I had started going up there for surgeries. We picked a cardiologist up there and I'd been seeing them for checkups all my life then after that. Okay. So you were very familiar with Mayo. It wasn't out of the ordinary for you, but this project was something different. By this point, were you seeing an adult cardiologist who's specialized in congenital heart disease? Yes. Yes. I was seeing David Driscoll, who's now again, retired. I was seeing him and then I had seen O'Leary when I was younger. So when he introduced himself, I'm like, oh yeah, I know who you are. And he's like, this is new stem cell research we want to try. And your name came up as one of the eligible participants. So So it was something that was brand new. Did your insurance come? You know, I don't know how that all worked. I'm assuming so. I never got a bill. (laughs) (laughs) It's been several years, so (laughs) we never got a bill. So yeah, I would assume my insurance covered it. I'm on state-funded insurance, so never had any issues there. I'm so glad that that wasn't an issue because it would be sad if you qualified for a certain project and maybe your insurance didn't cover it. And then because of that, you weren't able to take part. I don't know how that all worked with the people putting it on, how much of it was done through research and funding. Right, right. They may have had the fine details. They may have, and they needed participants. They needed people to say, all right, let's try it. Right. I'll be your guinea pig. Yep, that's have, what they were looking for. I know, right? Did you have some misgivings about being a guinea pig, about being the first so, one? By the time I got done driving home that day from the phone call, I kind of made up my mind I was going to do it. It doesn't take much to talk me into it. Everybody else in my family was like, <laughs> you're going to what? Are you sure? So then I kind of stepped back a little bit and I called around to some other hospitals and universities, just telling them the information I was given about it, what they were wanting mm-hmm. to do. And they were all like, nope, never done it, never tried it, don't know how it works. So how did that make you feel? It really didn't change my mind at all. I thought of it to myself as there had to be some parents out there that allowed their kids to have the very first banding of an artery or... Yeah. Norwood or Glenn or any of those mm-hmm. procedures. I just looked at it as if it can help somebody later on down the line, then why not? That was kind of my thought process. Somebody's got to be the first to try it. I love it that you had that altruistic motivation, that you yep. knew that somebody had done this for you so that you could be alive and now was your chance to actually get back. Yeah, that's the way I looked at it. And I trusted the people. I mean, I've been going to Mayo. I trusted what they were telling me. That helps so much. <laughs> it I mean, very much does. Hospital. You knew these doctors. You knew they weren't going to put you in something that was going to hurt you. They were only doing. Well, they didn't think it would at the time or anything bad was going to happen, and it didn't. But they were right. Just like, we so, how many sure. people were actually in that research um, study? I think there was twelve to thirteen of us. I only know. I think of one other person. I mean, all of it was confidential. Right. Um, right. But I think my doctor, if I recall, said about twelve of us. Okay. So that's pretty small. It was small. It just so happened that you knew somebody else. The HLHS community, pretty small. Mm -hmm. So when the doctor informed me it was age ranges, I had an idea. With social media, I put in a group of adults. Anybody else get this message? And one person replied back and I discussed with them too. Have you been in touch with them 
over the years? Yeah, yeah, hit and miss. I talk to him every once in a while. And has he had the same results that you've nope. had? Nope. I oh. found out later on I was the only one that had positive results. <laughs> wow. So don't know why. <laughs> let's talk about your results. What happened and how fast did it happen? Can you take us through the whole procedure? Sure. It was either a two or three day procedure. First day was just like getting there, getting prepped for surgery. I have written down day one. So then the next day I would have had surgery, which was removing a bone marrow. And originally they were going to have me awake for it. And then they kind of altered at the end of how much they wanted to take. So they ended up knocking me out and taking bone marrow. And then they worked their magic and got stem cells out of the bone marrow. So then after day one of removing bone marrow extract and making stem cells, I went down to the cath lab and via heart cath, they injected them into the right side of my heart, the stem cells. Oh, that's wonderful. So it didn't have to be an open heart procedure. It was nope, done. Nope. In a it was cath all lab. just done via heart cath. Okay. So they take your bone marrow out somehow or another, they wave a magic wand over it and yep. ta-da, stem cells come out. And then they <laughs> take those stem cells and they put them into the right side of your heart. Now, when I first read about this study, I thought for sure they put it on the left side of the heart. What I was told was the right side of the heart is used to doing the work and you don't want to wear it out. So this is a chance to kind of beef it up and to help it to last longer without going into heart failure. I had never thought of that before, but since you're a yep. single ventricle, that makes perfect sense. So they stuck it on the right side of your heart. And did you feel different? No, because like I said, going into it, I didn't feel bad. I didn't notice any major differences. No, the results of it were good. I had amazing results with it, according to my ejection fraction. So I did that procedure in January of 2016. And by my six-month checkup, it had improved to mid-40s. See, that's just amazing. That is just amazing. For those of you who don't know, this isn't a magic bullet. It's not like he got those stem cells and boom his ejection fraction went up like that because actually what they do is they seed his heart with these stem cells. And it actually takes a bit of time for those seeds to take root and right and to rejuvenate and for that tissue to start becoming stronger. At least that's the way that we understand it so far. Therefore, I wouldn't expect you to have much of a change in the way that you felt for quite a while. But you said you never felt bad. So I'm wondering, when you went back after six months and they were like, wow, this really worked great for you. Your ejection fraction is so much better. Had you had a stress test or something where you realized, wait a minute, I am doing better? No, I've had stress tests since then and they didn't really change. But when they look at an echo, I believe that's how they measure ejection fraction is through the echo and And no, I never noticed any difference other than the actual number change. (laughs) I didn't feel any worse or better, which was fine by me because like I said, I wasn't feeling worse to go into it or feeling bad to go into it. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more.
Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. So, Brenton, I understand that you were unwell with COVID and blood clots in the winter of 2021. So can you tell us what your symptoms were and what treatment was provided? My symptoms were actually, up until hospitalization, very mild. I know that sounds odd to say, but I came home, me and my wife had went out with some friends for some drinks. And I just remember being at the place, having a drink and being just very cold, just freezing, wearing my winter coat. And they were joking with me. They're like, why are you wearing a winter coat? I got home and I took Tylenol because I assumed I was running a fever. Mm -hmm. That was my natural assumption. The next day, Kelsey was going to the store and she's like, I'm going to get you a COVID test while I'm out. And she brought it home and I was positive and it was a two-in-one test. So I took the next one and I was positive in like three minutes on that result. So of course I called my doctors and I went to the ER and I just was showing mild symptoms. They were all pretty lackadaisical about it. And they're like, take vitamins, stay hydrated and rest like you would a cold. Oh, wow. Oh, they amazing. didn't even require you to go to the hospital? No, no, that's... Hey, okay. I'm so let me ask you, Brenton, had you been vaccinated? Yes. Yep. Okay. So you had had both vaccines. I had had two doses at that time defined as fully vaccinated. Yes. You were fully vaccinated. So do you yep. think that maybe that's why your doctors weren't as concerned because you had been fully I vaccinated? I think that was part of it. My wife had had it the year before mm. and had really bad symptoms and mine were very mild. I didn't have the cough. I had chills. I had right. chills. That was my symptom. That uh-huh. was pretty much it. I didn't have even a runny nose. It was just, I was cold. Wow. But then things changed. Yep. It ended up being day nine. They told me at the time to quarantine for 10 days. Okay. And I had went for a walk and I was outside and I didn't go as far as I usually do by myself. And I came home and I have an O2 sat like any heart patient probably does. And I checked it and it was 88, which generally my O2 is 96. So I remember that being kind of odd and just harder to breathe. Mm -hmm. I just remember it being harder to breathe. And it was later at night. I'd drink fluids, rest. If it's still bad in the morning, I'm calling my cardiologist and went to do chores or take care of McBoons there. I was feeding him. And I remember getting really dizzy. I went to the living room and sat down. Then after that, it's kind of a blur of what happened. At some point, apparently felt like I was fine. And then the next thing I remember, I hit the wall in our kitchen When I came to, my glasses were broken in front of me and my phone was in my hand, but I was crumpled on the floor and they don't really know how long I was out. We're estimating 20 to 30 minutes. Wow. So was your wife at work? Uh, She was quarantining away from me. Uh, So she was upstairs and... And didn't hear you crash. Nope. She didn't hear me crash. Thank God for pop sockets because my phone was still attached to my hand. And I blacked out. Oh my goodness. So I came to and called her instead of calling 911. I don't know why, but I called her first. She came downstairs and noticed what was going on. And she's like, holy cow. Oh called 911. They showed up and wow. went from there. 
Wow. That was day nine of my 10-day quarantine. I was feeling no. better other than the night before. My real heart symptom was just my O2 had dropped. It was really yeah. odd. You also weren't able to walk as far. So you had some exercise yep. fatigue that was uncommon yep. for you. So it was showing itself, but just not... Like not in the way later. that not like it I did when thought, you passed yeah. out in the kitchen. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. It just got really dizzy and hit the wall. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then you went to the hospital, and I was following you on Facebook yep. after this. Then some really scary stuff happened. Tell us what happened after you were admitted to the hospital. So they took me by ambulance from my house and treated me for dehydration. They called Mayo. Everything was checking back fine. Everything stat-wise was checking back fine. It happened on a Wednesday, and by Friday, I was out. There was a fairly short initial stay. Yep. They still ended up taking me to Mayo because living in rural Iowa, they kind of feel overwhelmed by... Sure. I would say quite overwhelmed by your medical history. I mean, yep. they're probably not using paper <laughs> files where they could see how thick it was, but I'm right. sure you have some flags on your file yes. that alert people to how special you are. Okay. Yes. So you went home after a few days because yep. you really weren't feeling that bad in the hospital. No. Nope. Right? Yeah. Once I got to the hospital, they put a whole Aren't bunch of fluids, of fluids in me, mm-hmm. monitored me for the couple of days and they couldn't really find anything wrong. Okay. Other Which than great. they knew I was COVID positive and I was past day 10 at that point. So they were like, what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I do, have no do? issues with how they treated me at all. Mm-hmm. So I cleared their protocol and they sent me home and I was home less than 24 hours. Oh, wow. And the same thing happened. <laughs> Makes you afraid yeah. to go into the kitchen. I had mentioned that I live close to my family. My parents pretty much live in my backyard. It's one street over. And I got to my parents' house. I'd walked over there. And when I got there, I went to use the restroom and I was in there a while. My dad yelled, are you doing okay? And I said, no, you're going to have to help get me up. And I was sweating and I oh. turned pale again. And we strapped an O2 on my finger and it was at 67. Oh my gosh. Well, so and this we time you knew the whole something was again. wrong. Yeah, absolutely. That time I was like, okay, they are missing something. Mm-hmm. There's issues. So we did the whole thing again. Did yeah, you go straight to Mayo to. or did you go to your That night they that? held me at Carroll at their local facility at St. Anthony's there. And hydrated me but the doctor there knew something else was going on because at that point my kidneys weren't functioning correctly oh Uh, wow i was not urinating and my kidneys were shutting down oh my gosh okay so now you're starting to get scared this is not supposed to happen (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely interesting being now an adult with a cardiac condition because you know what symptoms to read with Mm -hmm. your body and you know what they mean or at least i do so when you're in the ambulance and you've lost your sight because your blood sugar is so low <laughs> and you're telling them, just read me my sats and they're telling me, and then my eyes do open and I get to see my fingers and they're black. I'm like, oh, this isn't good. This like, is this not is good. Yeah. Nope. Nope. I knew I wasn't getting oxygen to extremities and the body always just tries to protect itself first. Right. So the blood's <laughs> going to go to the brain, to the fingers yep, last, brain and to the heart brain first, and right? Organs and <laughs> so I knew when my extremities were turning, you know, blackish purple, I'm like, oh, this is bad news. So, so. when you got to Mayo the second time, right. what, what did they decide? They decided to put me in a CT machine. And they thought there was a blockage. They were not absolutely positive. They decided to put a cath in with the camera 
And they brought me back up to the room after that. And they walked in and they said, we're doing emergency surgery. You are full of clots, young man. And I was. They found four giant clots running through my fontan and through oh my, my stents. Gosh. Okay. So that had to be scary to be told that you are going to have to have emergency surgery. What did you do? Well, it was still COVID protocol up at the hospital. At the time, I could only have my wife and mom. So I asked to have my dad come in and I prayed with them and talked to them. And the doctors came in and said, are you ready? I think I remember asking who the surgeon was going to be. And it was somebody I didn't know, but he was younger and he was cocky. And I liked that in a surgeon. So I said, (laughs) let's do it. Anytime I've ever had surgery as an adult where I get to communicate with them, I always like to razz them a little bit and say, do you think you can do it? And (laughs) of course they say yes. So then we go from there. We roll out into the hall and down in the surgical room. How were they going to deal with those clots? It was all done via heart cath. Very skilled surgeons. Wow. So did they actually remove the clots or did they put in some kind of medicine that dissolved them? Nope. We had tried that actually. Like I had said, my kidneys were shutting down. So they put me on dialysis and they tried blood clotting stuff and that wasn't working. So that's why we did the camera to see what was going on because they're like, you have to have clots because you're not getting blood, anything south of your stomach. Oh my (laughs) gosh. Yeah. How long was that surgery? Oh, four hours. Is that four hours? Oh my gosh. Your poor wife and mom and dad. That must have been so Uh, I mean, you you were out, so you don't really. No, no. I mean. I don't oh remember it, but yeah, no, you're not out. You're conscious sedation. Oh really my gosh. Male, but that's okay. I don't remember wow. much of it other than talking to the anesthetist or how Well, they probably it. wanted to make sure that you were okay yep. and you were with it. Absolutely. And if you were under, they wouldn't have any idea. So they pulled yep. four clots out? Yep. Pulled and- four clots out. Once those came out, my numbers bounced back. <laughs> Luckily, right. I still was up there for a month. Because they all agreed that I needed to go on a blood thinner, which I've never been on. Nothing stronger than baby aspirin at that point in my life. So they decided to put me on Warfarin and I took forever to get equated with Warfarin. Yeah, Um, it's a complicated drug and trying to get those INRs just perfect. Very much is. One of the reasons they thought I was just dehydrated, and this is why I don't blame them for sending me home that first week. They sent me home with just you know, dehydration. That's what they thought was the problem. I had tested positive for C. diff. So I had C. diff on top of introducing blood thinners. They would give me blood thinners and then they would give me the IV of blood thinners. You had to have so much of it in your system to override the IV. So then you disconnect from the IV for six hours, take blood, get the results back. Nope. You're not high enough yet. Going back on the IV. Most of my time I felt fine. I told both my wife and mother to go home. I said, they're going to keep me here until these numbers are right, which they should have. So just go home. Thank God for technology. I could video call them and talk with them all day if I wanted to. But I wasn't able to to do much other than just walk the halls and take my meds for about 17 days. Oh, my goodness. That just sounds horrible. Although it had such a good outcome that you can say, yeah. yeah, that was really awful. Nobody should have to go through that. It was really scary, but thank goodness we had a good outcome. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you've taken part in this trial. Your ejection fraction improves. Thank goodness, because imagine how hard that would have been on your body if you hadn't had a better ejection fraction. 
Right. Exactly. It could have been so much worse for you. So we know that that trial started in 2016. Mm-hmm. What do we know about the prognosis now? Is this something where you'll have to keep getting those stem cells every now and then? Or I could be wrong. All I know is from what I asked the doctor. He's no longer my doctor. So like I had mentioned, my doctor had retired. Driscoll retired. Right. And he retired right when I was joining this stem cell trial. Uh, okay. So I had Yarzer Karishi as my doctor during this whole stem cell treatment. And then when I had to get a pacemaker, I had Brian Cannon. So I was basically told to choose between them. But before I chose, I talked to Dr. Karishi and that's how I knew I was the only one that it worked correctly for or how they had hoped for. And they just said that they went a different direction with the trial. That's all he told me. So what it's they all were done. Yeah, pretty much. It didn't work is kind of what I gather. They wrote it off as, all right, no. I'm assuming they're still trying to do something similar, but not that per se is what I got. Wow. So have they tested your rejection fraction recently? Like since yeah, you when I was recovered in the hospital, from COVID? Yep. Mm-hmm. It was lower 40s this time. It had dropped a little bit, 40. But, but I'm sure your heart was really taxed with everything that you oh, went through with the COVID and the blood clots. With, with the blood clots. And then I Steve guess Diff. I didn't mention that we redid the stinting. We put more stints in. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, yeah that you was had a, long a lot surgery. going on. Oh, yeah. I don't know that the blood clots did damage to the stents, but they widened it for sure once they got me down there. Yeah. So, oh, that makes sense. Try and yep. prevent this. Make it harder for clots happen- to occur. Right. right. Yep. Exactly. That's why I went on the blood thinner, too. I went back to my job a month out. I waited for my month and then I went back to work and I'm pretty much back to the way I was pre COVID. If I have any lingering effects COVID wise, it's just kind of short term memory, but I'm finding a lot of people had that. Yeah, so, I've been hearing that too. Yeah. I also had a little bit of tremors in my hands, but that's slowly gotten better the farther out I've got from COVID. Oh, that's so, good. That's yeah. good. How do you feel yeah. since you had those blood clots removed? Do you feel like you have more energy and you're able to breathe better? Oh, yeah. I mean, I couldn't function that week I had the clots. I knew something was wrong and I kept saying it was my stomach. It was not a chest pain. The whole time, even with the clots, I didn't have chest pain. I had stomach cramping. And we think after talking with doctors at the ER, I wasn't getting circulation in my stomach. Right. So that would make it hurt. So once we got the clots removed and I started to get blood flow, pain went away. (laughs) Other than the C. diff, I still had cramping. Cramping can happen with C. diff too. Oh my gosh. So much to think about. (laughs) It was a big puzzle for them to try to figure out what was going on for sure. It was. And I was so thankful that you and your wife were keeping us posted. I think you had people all over the world praying for you. I very much did. And I'm very grateful for it. I appreciate it. Yeah. I believe in the power of prayer. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So do you have any words of advice for somebody if they should get a call like you do that said, hey, you qualify for this study? (laughs) (laughs) Ask as many questions as you can. Trust the people that are going to do the trial. You got to know yourself and where you're at in your life. But for me, being older with this condition, I looked at it as my opportunity to try something different to maybe help the next generation at that point. That's why I looked at it. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the program today, Brenton. This was really informative. Not a problem. I enjoyed it. Well, you certainly are a miracle case, Brenton. Absolutely. Well, friends, 
That's it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen to our show. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time, wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern time.